Rockabye baby, daddy's awake. When he comes home, hard cider he'll swig. When he has swug, he'll fall in a snoo. And down will come Tyler and Tippy Canoe. I have shown how, in centuries of equality, each man seeks his beliefs within himself. I want to show how, in the same centuries, he concentrates all his sentiments on himself. Individualism is a recent expression arising out of a new idea. Our fathers knew only the word egoism. Egoism is a passionate and exaggerated love of self that impels man to relate everything solely to himself and to perfect himself to everything else. Individualism is a reflective and tranquil sentiment that disposes each citizen to cut himself off from the mass of his fellow man and withdraw into a circle of family and friends so that, having created a little society for his own use, he gladly leaves the larger society to take care of itself. Egoism is born of blind instinct. Individualism proceeds from erroneous judgment rather than depraved sentiment. Its source lies as much in defects of the mind as in vices of the heart. Egoism is a vice as old as the world. It is not to any great extent more characteristic of one form of society than of any other. Individualism is democratic in origin and it threatens to develop as conditions equalize. Well, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we'll be looking at part two of volume two of Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. Um, so if you're just joining us, you might want to go back and listen to my previous five episodes where I looked at all of volume one and the beginning of volume two of this wonderful exploration of political theory, one of the best ever written in my view. Um, volume two in general deals more with the intellectual and mental and um, emotional social consequences of democracy. The first volume of the book is mostly political and about institutions. Part two or volume two is mostly about the mind. Now, in part one, it was more with the intellectual traditions, history, theater, oratory, poetry, and how it manifests in democratic societies. And we see that it, it's commodified, it's, it's, it's a bit banal. Unfortunately, it doesn't seek great heights, it seeks uh, great profit almost. Um, it seeks what's popular. And these are all negative aspects of democracy in Tocqueville's view. Part two is, is really key to this whole second volume of, of Democracy in America. Uh, the title of part two is Influence of Democracy on the Sentiments of the Americans. Um, but it really comes down to this concept of individualism versus egoism. Now, if you listen to that opening quote very carefully, we see Tocqueville not a fan either of egoism or individualism. You almost get the sense he'd prefer egoism. Egoism being this exaggerated sense of self, this, this idea that one is better than, than, than others. But at least you're social, right? At least you see yourself as part of a society. The problem with individualism is it lends people to kind of break away from society, break away from kind of think their own way about things, to kind of go off in their own direction. Now, it could be socially exclusion, like going off in the farm, like the agrarian ideal. But I think here he's really more concerned with the fact that people just come to their own conclusions about things, assume that they're right, and don't really engage with society. The egoist will try to aggressively convince others that he's right. Uh, that's not the case in, in democracy. So this part, it's, it's got 20 chapters. Part one has 20 chapters, but it's only 
80 pages, I think. Yeah, it's about 80 pages, but it has 20 chapters. So it's a pretty, um, you know, he, it's like part one. Actually, all of volume two of Democracy in America has a lot of these short little chapters um, where he's not really giving long dissertations on like political institutions as he does in volume one. He's basically just going through his observations. Now, a lot of it is kind of speculative. A lot you get sense, you get the sense are just based on his impression of America. I think there's a lot here we can learn, and that's, that, that seems to be right. I grok a lot of this is, is correct, or at least correct at the time, but it still does come off as, as, you know, he has this idea and he jots it down briefly in a little essay. Like, none of this stuff would really pass, like, academic muster. If you turned it in as an, as an undergraduate paper, it'd be a, you know, I don't know if your, your English 101 professor would, would like it, you know, because there's no footnotes, there's no evidence, it's just... His, his, his overall feelings about, about Americans. Nevertheless, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. And most, some of my favorite stuff in this book is in this section. Um, chapter one, he, he starts with the kind of the root of the problem of individualism, and that is the conflict between liberty and equality. Now, I, he thinks in general, Americans or democratic people will show more love for equality than liberty. Like they'll surrender liberty for equality. Um, but he does think they can overlap, like he gives the example of political equality really coinciding with liberty. That's kind of the classical liberal idea, right? If everyone can participate, then you don't have any tyrannical power, and, and so political liberties come out of political equality. The problem seems to come when people choose to pursue uh, their equality in civil society outside of government. He writes, equality can establish itself in civil society and not prevail in the world of politics. People may enjoy the right to indulge in the same pleasure, to enter the same professions, and to meet the same places. In short, to live in the same way and pursue wealth by the same means without all taking part in the same government. A sort of equality can even be established in the political world even though political liberty does not exist. Each person is equal to his fellow save one who is master of all. Now, but what's the problem with equality in, in society and in social relations? Well, part of it is this, we're back to this kind of banality of everything. This kind of everything gets shoved down to the lowest common denominator, just kind of the, the culture of the masses or the ideas of the masses or the values of the masses kind of get, uh, kind of get homogenized. He writes, equality provides a multitude of lesser pleasures to everyone every day. The charms of equality are constantly apparent and within reach of all. The noblest hearts are not insensible to them, and most vulgar souls delight in them. The passion to which equality gives rise is therefore both powerful and general. And he thinks that this can actually reach frenzy proportions, and this can be where there's a threat to, to, to liberty in the preference for equality among democratic people. He does say, though, that like all things being equal, democratic people will tend towards liberty, but uh, he says equality is like a deeper demand you know, and a more fundamental need of democratic people. He says, they will feel an ardent, insatiable, eternal, invincible passion. They want equality and liberty. And if they can't have it, they still want it in slavery. They will suffer poverty, servitude, and barbarity, but they will not suffer aristocracy. Now remember, Tocqueville's always contrasting America to these aristoc to the aristocracy. That's his audience, our more aristocratic societies that are undergoing a transition that he sees a transition to democracy. Um, now, chapter two is where my opening quote came from. Chapter two, two explores this tension between individualism and egoism. And I, I think I more or less defined it. Individualism being the cutting off of oneself and one's ideas. And, and egoism being something that's more akin to what you feel in aristocratic 
cultures where someone does feel himself better than than everyone else but is still part fundamentally part of society the danger of individualism is this breaking away of of society and then even breaking out of time right so part of this even becomes like a temporal dislocation of people and democracies he says like democracy will make people forget his forebears and and not really care about his offspring he just sees himself at this moment instead of really seeing himself as a as part of a social being and i think that's what he sees as part of the real danger here um now i don't know i i see a little bit of a, of a tension here between the fact that there's kind of this lowest common denominator in culture in de democracies where everything kind of moves to the mean at the same time that that only exists that mean only exists if there is a society right um but there's also this individualism seems to pull people off in different directions intellectually and and and, and ideas but I think at the heart of it is this, this problem that, that people in democracies feel themselves as not really connected to, to others in a social network. And, and that, he thinks, is quite dangerous. Um, quote, it leads him back to himself and threatens ultimately to imprison him altogether in the loneliness of his own heart. Those are, those are pretty harsh words. I, I don't know if aristocracy is preferable, but he sees in aristocratic cultures uh, more of a, of, a, of a social web that, that ties people into it. Um, then in the next chapter, chapter three, rise of individual, how it's called how individualism is more pronounced at the end of a democratic revolution than at any other time. So here his real concern is Europe because he's saying what's going to happen when you have a democratic revolution in a culture that's that's not democratic initially, right? And he says that that's going to grow over time as people rebel against aristocratic passions. It's not really relevant for America though because America was born is born democratic. He established that many, many times in the book. It's like almost in his opening paragraph is Americans were born, like the, the frontier, this, the colonial situation, they were born more egalitarian to begin with or more with the equality of conditions. So democracy was something that's just there with them always. It, the politics came later, right? The social conditions were there first. In Europe, it's the other way around, right? We have a political democratic revolution, but the social conditions are still aristocratic. Now, why don't then, why does an individual just run amok in America? So then he goes on in a series of chapters explaining why it doesn't. He says there are actually counterbalancing forces in democracies that keep individualism in check. And these are social institutions. So that earlier concern of people just going off and doing their own thing, you know, are, that, that desire is checked by kind of a, a I want to get it right, a centripetal force that pulls people back in. If individualism is a centrifugal force in society, these institutions and things are centripetal forces pulling people back into, into society um, and keeping them, keeping them there roughly. And so the first of these are, are institutions and associ basically associations. And he spends a lot of time here. And here's who he's got. Here's, he's very famous for his looking at how Americans form groups and form associations and form clubs and all sorts of things. This is something that really struck him in America that he didn't see in Europe, that Americans were always forming like these little gangs, you know, for associations for every little thing. You know, even kids will form, I don't think he talks about kids directly, but we, we've seen this, right? You see even kids form clubs. They have constitutions and, and cards and presidents and, and things like that. It's uh, students play it, play this in school. It's, you have sports teams doing it. You have labor unions, political parties, those are political institutions, but you have all these other institutions, associations throughout American society. And you think this is something that's counteracting against individualism. And in a positive way, I think he's, he's more hopeful 
that these institutions can check that centrifugal force of, of individualism. All right, so this is jumping ahead to chapter five, where he's just so fascinated at how Americans are so good at just forming these groups. Quote, Americans of all ages, all conditions, and all minds are constantly joining together in groups. In addition to commercial and industrial associations, in which everyone takes part, there are associations of a thousand other kinds, some religious, some moral, some grave, some trivial, some quite general and others quite particular, some huge and others tiny. Americans associate to give fetes, to found seminars, to build inns, to erect churches, to distribute books, to send missionaries to the antipodes. This is how they create hospitals, prisons, and schools. If finally they wish to publicize a truth or foster a sentiment by which, with the help of a great example, they associate. Whenever there's a new undertaking at the head of which you'd expect to see in France the government and in English some great lord, in the United States you're sure to find an association. Um, yeah, and so this, this chapter, four, yeah, it's four and five, are all about this tendency of Americans to, to gravitate to one another. And in, in chapter six, he kind of continues this by throwing in newspapers, how Americans will wash in newspapers. And that's another thing that kind of pulls people back together. Now, while in an aristocratic culture, newspapers, I guess like any authoritarian, more authoritarian society, newspapers have a thing of, of kind of forcing everyone together into one point of view, like propaganda, you know, the mass media controlled by the state or controlled by central powers. In America, it's, it's all bottom up, right? You have all these newspapers everywhere and each association has its own newsletter. And this is another thing he was struck by. It's just this massive amount of print culture. So everyone is kind of reading this stuff and that's kind of fusing their ideas together more. So we can put that down as the first prophylactic against aggressive individuals, and that is association. And he's got talks about civil associations, political associations, newspapers, and all the different types of associations that are there. Now in chapter eight, he begins talking about another aspect that um, he sees limiting individuals, and that is self-interest. That it's in people's it's to people's benefit to just to remain attached to society. And what is more, I guess, what's more of, a, of evidence that one sees oneself tied to society than sacrifice, than, than self-sacrifice, right? So again, while in an aristocratic culture, the idea of dying for your nation may be a virtue. In the United States, it's, it's not seen as a virtue. Instead, it's seen as an extension of self-interest, uh, self right? Like, you know, we we die, you know, for freedom or something. I mean, that's essentially self-interested at the end of the day. He would, he seems to argue here. That, um, quote, in the United States, people rarely say that virtue is beautiful. They maintain that it's useful and give proof of this daily. American moralists do not hold that a man should sacrifice himself for his fellow man because it's a great thing to do. They boldly assert rather that such sacrifices are unnecessary to a man who makes them as to the man who profits from them. End quote. So even like the charity, right? You, you do charity and you feel good about that. And that's your self-interest in, in charity, I suppose. The only problem with this is this seems to limit the amount of like grand sacrifice you're going to have. One what you get are a lot of little sacrifices, which, which can be computed as essentially self-interest at the end of the day. The grand noble sacrifice is, is not there. It's just too grandiose for, for a democratic society. Uh, and, and a society that tends towards individualism. But, um, so he's got a few chapters here where he kind of develops this theme of self-interest. And in chapter nine, he takes it on in terms of even religion, where he's, he's quite cynical here about the reason Americans embrace religion. He sees it really at the end of the day about people 
basically some some self-interest at the end, whether it's spiritual self-interest, the afterlife, or or the fe feeling good about what one does. Um, but it's he says. Uh, and he says this kind of leads to the worldliness of American religion, too. He says, American preachers refer to the world constantly and indeed can avert their eyes from it only with the greatest of difficulty. Seeking to touch their listeners all the more effectively, they are forever pointing out how religious beliefs foster liberty and public order. And in listening to them is often difficult to tell whether the cheap object of religion is to procure eternal happiness in this world or well-being in the other world or well-being in this one. And that really feeds into, he then goes from self-interest to a more specific discussion of self-interest and that is well-being. Right. And he thinks there's an obsession in America for for well-being. And I think this comes in his view out of out of a more equal quality of conditions. And if we take the extreme aristocratic example where everyone who's a peasant is just poor and whatever they do, however hard they work, they'll always be poor and miserable. And then the aristocrats are up there no matter how stupid they are or or, you know, wrongheaded they are. They're going to stay aristocrats and they're going to stay rich, right? So there's no relationship between work and effort and, you know, and, and outcomes and incomes, right? Um, but in America, of course, at least at this time, I don't think that's true anymore. But at this time, at least there seemed to be, for white men, a relationship between effort and sacrifice and some sort of income and the ability to achieve well-being. So you get this kind of looking up all the time too, to to others, kind of a, a longing for it. And that's a counter failing force to individualism, right? Because the end result of individualism is, hey, go live, go get your 40 acres, right? Go live in the woods and, and just do your own thing, right? That's not really what Americans do. They, they do kind of have this pursuit of well-being, which kind of leaves them in society. And, and so that's another centripetal force. I hope I'm getting those forces right. You know what I mean? It's the one pulling toward, towards society. He writes, in America, I found no citizen so poor that he did not gaze with hope and longing upon the pleasures of the rich, or that his imagination did not savor in advance goods that fate ostensibly refused to grant him. On the other hand, I never found among wealthy Americans I have proud disdain for material well-being that can sometimes be seen in the most opulent and dissolent of, of aristocracies. Most of those wealthy people had been poor. They have felt the spur of need. They have waged a long battle against hostile fortunes. And though victory was now theirs, they have passions that have accompanied their struggles survived, end quote. So it works two ways, right? I think he's pointing to the fact that in these aristocracies, where, every, where you have these rich people at the top, these are the same people who then scold maybe this middle class for trying to live opulent lives of full of well-being and riches. You know, they're kind of looking down at them, even though they're enjoying that same pleasure. In America, you don't get that kind of tension, right? You get, you get instead the algorithm, right? This where an author... You know, imagines that everyone can be rich so one day if they if they just put the right effort into it. Well, what's the result of this? So we've we've seen that individualism exists and it's the tendency of democratic societies uh, instead of egoism, and that's bad because it leads to kind of basically a lack of social cohesion, uh, um, and people just doing whatever they want, total anarchy, I guess. Um, it's, it's, it's struggled against by institutions. Well, institutions fix that and correct that, as does this desire for well-being and self-interest. Um, but what's the result of that? One result of that, is, especially the search for well-being, is, is a restlessness and anxiety. And, the, the, of course, the cliche about Americans that they, you know, they can't just take two hours for lunch. They're always striving for something. They're always trying new things. They're always running places. 
He writes, The man who has given his heart entirely to the quest for the goods of this world is always in a hurry, for he has but a limited time to find, possess, and enjoy them. The memory of life's brevity constantly spurns him on. Beyond the goods he possesses, he's forever imagining a thousand other that death will prevent him from saving unless he makes haste. He even says that like suicide's a problem in France, but it's not a problem in America. But what America has is insanity, and, and he kind of sees some connection between mental illness and and the restlessness of, of a democracy. I think that was kind of an interesting addition. Again, there's no empirical evidence in so much of this part of the book, but it's just, you know, he's playing with a lot of fun, different ideas here. So how does this combine then with liberty, with political action and public, you know, public doings, right? Is there a way that, I mean, it's, it's easy to see how well-being can exist in as a desire, but how does this, really become that force that prevents individualism from totally fracturing society. This is what he takes up in chapter 14 called How the Taste for Material Gratification is Combined in America with Love of Liberty and Concern about Public Affairs. And the key to this is simply that uh, the self-interested, well-being-seeking American individualist will demand and require and participate in securing a government that will not interfere with that pursuit and actually aid that pursuit, right? So it's, it's kind of like how the Constitution says secure the, the general welfare, right? Um, he would say that it's, it's much more, you know, that w general welfare is actually interpreted as, as well-being, right? And I guess conservatives who criticize the expansion of the state maybe need to, you know, ponder this, this, this segment because what he's really saying here is, by creating the foundation for well-being and prosperity. There has to be some kind of public role in that. And that's going to be where people come together in, in politics and that's something they can agree on um, because that's going to allow them to pursue their private in, individual self-interest, well-being more easily without encumbrances by, by poverty. You know, like just think of a road, right? Are you more likely to have well-being if you have good roads uh, or if you, if you, if you don't? He even says at one point here that radical self-interest saying, like, I don't want anything to do with politics is basically short-sighted and doesn't really, doesn't really work. Now, he's got one chapter here, sort of at the end of the section where he's talking about well-being, where he does say religion still has a role here and the immaterial has a role, kind of just in slightly tempering this. And he gives the example of, of the day of rest, right? No drinking on Sunday or no business on Sunday. That's just one example of that. But he says, for instance, Americans show by their practice that they're fully aware of the need to instill morality into democracy by way of religion. What they think about themselves in this respect is a truth in which every democratic nation ought to be steeped. And basically he's saying that there, there has to be some kind of tempering of this. And that's kind of another force that I guess prevents individualism from, from running amok. Um, but he's still overall concerned a little bit with the overall materialism of, of democracy and the material definition of well-being, right? Well-being becomes money, property, a nice house, you know, those kinds of things. Not, you know, not something more lofty, but as we've seen in part one of, section, of volume two, it's hard for Americans to have those lofty thoughts because it's, it's not really, it doesn't really coincide with democracy. And he does think the end result of this is some kind of brutishness. He, he writes, should man ever manage to content themselves with material goods, there's reason to believe that they would gradually lose the art of producing them and end up enjoying them indiscriminately and without progress like brutes. 
So what's the solution? What's the solution to this? Uh, well, he sees one thing that democracy, he gives a little bit of advice from time to time to democracy. In, in chapter 17, he does this, where he says that what, when you have equality, it's very, very important to avoid individualism, to avoid these, um, some of these negative aspects he's hinting at, you know, to have that centripetal force. The way to do that is by establishing certain kind of lofty goals. So, um, you know, fit in whatever you want, fit in manifest destiny, fit in the war to end all wars, fit in the, the New Deal kind of logic, fit in, you know, any kind of bold political program, going to the moon, whatever. These things, which as long as they can be framed in terms of self-interest, because if they can't, it, it's not going to really work in America. It has to be framed in self-interest at the end of the day. But if it can be, these broad goals can be an effective way of, of tempering individualism as well. Now, the final three chapters, I don't see quite how they're, they fit in with the theme. I, I think he was pretty consistent in the first 17 chapters, kind of building an argument from this cornerstone of individualism versus egoism and the problem of individualism. Chapter 18, he, he kind of, in the 19 and 20, he moves to a question of industry. But they're important because America, of course, does become an industrial nation. And this is going to be a bigger part of, 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 of part three, where he really talks about uh, you know, social relations a little bit more broadly, like between worker and boss. Um, the first point he makes, though, and maybe this ties to well-being overall, is as long as you're pursuing well-being, your, your profession is honorable, right? So there isn't the dishonorable profession. So if you're a servant, you can be an honorable servant, right? It's as long as you're working. So you're right, the American servants do not feel degraded because of we work for everyone around them everyone around them is working. They don't feel degraded by the idea of receiving a wage for the president of the United States also works for a wage. He is paid to command just as they are paid to serve. So there's kind of an equality of, of just a value of work. There's not the stream hierarchies. Now you could say, you know, certainly, you know, there's class conflict and status issues in America. And they may have grown over time since the since when Tocqueville wrote this. But I would say he's really comparing this, you gotta always remember he's comparing it to aristocratic societies where to be a servant is to be, you know, to be a domestic servant is to be a servant, right? Even in the terminology we use, I'll talk about more of this in the next episode when Tocqueville gets into this, but you know, the language we use, like we don't say master, we say boss. And we, you know, even if you're a domestic servant, you know, even the term servant is kind of not entirely like, so you might say butler or you know, we, we switch the language a little bit to to temper the class divisions, but there's kind of a baseline respect for, for industry or for just having work. Uh, now, in chapter 19, he argues that you're going to get a tendency towards industrial occupation. So this is running contrary to kind of the Jeffersonian agrarian ideal. He doesn't think that's the future of, of, of America. He thinks it is going to move into industry. His, his argument for this is pretty simple. It's just that Americans do things in associations. They do things collectively. They, you know, they, they, they pool wealth. So it's not so he wouldn't be surprised to see the rise of the corporation in post-World War, uh, post-Civil War America. He wouldn't be surprised to see even the rise of labor unions. But industrial work is a cooperative, collective enterprise where kind of the differences between people are kind of muted. And that, that's akin to what he sees overall happening in democratic societies. But another part of this is is this restlessness that's going to push people out of agriculture. I mean, that's the other part of the argument here, is that overall restlessness with their conditions, their situation, their, their wealth, their income, is going to push them to find different work. And that's going to gravitate into industrial occupations, 
right? He's not quite saying here that industrial capitalism is the future. I, I think he's not really envisioning it that way. He is, though, worried, and I think this is where maybe the more Marxist approach may want to uh, just glance over at Tocqueville and see what he says, is in the final chapter of part two where he writes uh, how, an industry, how industry could give rise to an aristocracy. And here he actually does do what's almost like a Marxist analysis of, of division of labor and alienation and, and, and those related ideas. Of course, one of the key ideas of Marx is work is alienating. And one reason it's alienated is because of division of labor. And he says that's going to be the end result. This restlessness for wealth is going to create this derive to have the most efficient kind of uh, labor system that will eventually lead, he predicts, I think rightfully, in the case his prediction was right, to, to organization and management. And here's what he writes. In this respect, therefore, master and worker are not alike at all. And with each passing day, they become increasingly different. They are joined only in the sense of being two extreme links of a long chain. Each one occupies a place that is made for him, which he does not leave. On the one is in a state of constant, strict, and necessary dependence on the other, and seems born to obey, as the other seems born to command. What is this, if not an aristocracy? So that's kind of a bleak prediction at the end of some of an aristocracy of types forming in industries in America. And I think when we look at the class conflict of later 19th century America, and the tension between democracy and and the aristocratic aspects of, of industry, you know, I think his, his warning here is, is well taken. So anyways, that is part two of Democracy in America, uh, part, part two of volume two of Democracy in America. It deals mostly, as we've seen, with uh, the question of individualism and the forces that, that prevent individualism from going crazy, right? The, that there's the tension between the individualism and the social. And why does the social tend to win out, or at least the individuals will get tempered enough to keep society, political society, liberty, and these other things intact, right? So um, he's fairly optimistic in here, but he's got a few warnings about maybe industry, maybe a little bit to the shallowness of self-interest and material well-being. Um, but overall, he thinks that individualism is not something that's going to run amok in, in a democracy. It, it is possible to be tempered. Now, in the next episode, I'll look at part three of volume two of Democracy in America, which is the section on mores. So now we're really getting into people's heads. Uh, we're getting into like gender stuff, uh, children, some really fascinating things, war, culture of war. So um, really looking forward to talking about part three with you. A lot of great applications of, of his overall thesis about democracy. But um, let me know what you think about individualism. How do you define individualism? Do you disagree with Tocqueville's reading of it? Do you find individualism not something that's antisocial, but rather something that is, is kind of a foundation of society? One see, like for instance, I, I don't totally agree with Tocqueville here. I think individualism is a way in which we reflect our own subjectivity, but that requires acknowledging the subjectivity of others a little bit. And uh, it's a larger argument to be, be made, I'm, I'm sure. And, but it's what, I, what I'm trying to say is individualism requires kind of a, it can't be just a mirror, right? Because it, it, our individuality is in relation to other people. And so we have to be aware of other people and acknowledge them to a certain degree. So there is, at its heart, a social aspect to individualism. Um, so um, anyways, I, I'm well, let, let me know what you think. Let me know what you think about individualism and the way it's been tempered in democratic societies like the United States. Um, so um, I guess that's it for now. I'll see you next time with Volume 2, Part 3 of Democracy America. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, as always, for listening.
Rock a bye, baby, when you awake, you will discover old tip is a fake. Far from the battle, a war cry and drum. He sits in his cabin drinking bad rum. <laughs>